Welcome to Trade Matters, a podcast by the Yeider Institute at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. I'm Jill O'Donnell. Our guest today is Wendy Cutler, Vice President of the Asia Society Policy Institute and the Managing Director of the Institute's Washington, D.C. office. For nearly three decades, she served as a diplomat and negotiator in the office of the U.S. Trade Representative, where she worked on a range of U.S. trade negotiations in the Asia-Pacific region, including the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Wendy, thank you so much for joining us on Trade Matters today. We really appreciate it. Well, thanks, Jill, for inviting me. And it's a real pleasure to be speaking at, um, at the Yider Institute. Um, Ambassador Yider was the first of nine U.S. trade representatives I worked for. I was quite young then, but um, he, he just was such a gentleman and such a legend in the trade area. So it's really my honor to be doing this. Well, thank you. And that's a perfect place to start, um, that you first worked for Clayton um, and worked for nine different USTRs, which means that you've seen um, a lot of different transitions occur um, between presidential administrations. And so I want to start by asking you what that's like um, from a USTR vantage point. President-elect Biden has recently announced an agency review team, as you know, um, to review USTR and how it works, as well as other trade-related agencies in the U.S. government. So what do you expect a team like that to do? What kinds of things do they look for during this transition period? And what was your own experience like at USTR during presidential transitions? So yeah, Jill, as you mentioned, I worked for nine US trade representatives and that involved four transitions between the Republicans and the Democrats or the Democrats and Republicans. And transitions, frankly, they're not easy. They're not easy in life. It, by definition, it means a change. And so, um, you know, there are a time when the career staff is getting used to the new political staff. Um, the political staff is typically kind of staffing up. So it's not like everyone on the political staff starts at day one. And typically the US trade representative, um, a position that needs confirmation may not even start at the agency until months after the January 21, 20th um, presidential inauguration. So um, some, most transitions I've been involved in have been fairly smooth. And this notion of having like a review team come in between the time of the election and January 20th is very normal. Um, obviously um, this time it's, a, it's a, gonna be a little different in that the president still hasn't conceded the election nor is the general services administration certified that the formal transition can begin. Um, it's important for these teams to really get into the agency. And I remember meeting with these teams through the years and really what they're focusing on, they wanna get a better sense of the personnel, the staffing and other administrative manners, um, the budget of the agency to get a better sense of which positions they'll need to fill. They wanna get a sense of the morale in the building, what things could be done differently what things did they like about the past administration? And then moreover, they're very interested in particularly hearing about what decisions need to be taken in the early days in the, of an administration. So in other words, what will they have to focus on in the first 30 days or the first 100 days? And you can imagine in trade where there's a combination of reports due, WTO decisions that might be taken or other legislative deadlines and ongoing negotiations. Um, whatever USTR comes in, their hands are typically full um, on day one. 
So they have to be ready to hit the ground running, of course, because trade policy doesn't stop. So let me focus now a little bit on policy itself. And it seems to me that the focus will be China, China, China. So I want to start there with you. Um, I want to quote from an interview that you did recently for Bloomberg Business Week, where you said, quote, we're going to be looking more and more through the lens of China as we pursue trade policy, when we choose negotiating partners, when we choose issues that we want to focus on, when we think of restrictions, it is all going to be through the lens of China, unquote. So China has been a major focus of the Trump administration as well. And I wanna ask, how do you think the incoming Biden administration is likely to handle the situation on China that it's going to inherit, which has been shaped by the trade war, a phase one trade deal, and tariffs that are still in place on hundreds of billions of dollars worth of products? Yeah, and it's, that's a great question. I mean, the president-elect has been pretty clear that our relationship with China is going to be a top focus for the administration. Um, he has also expressed his strong concerns about not just Chinese trade practices, but their human rights record um, and what they're doing geopolitically around the region and the world. So what I would expect is that there will be kind of a whole of government review of our China policy, because I think under a Biden administration will be a much more coherent China policy and trade will be part of that policy. I don't think trade is gonna drive that policy like it seems to have done so in the Trump administration. In addition, the vice president, the president elect has made it very clear that he really wants to work with allies and partners and leverage multilateral institutions overall, but in particular um, in, 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 in dealing with um, concerns about China. So I think you're gonna see a lot of emphasis on working with Japan and the EU, Canada, um, Korea, Australia, and kind of widening that net with the, with the objective of the more countries that can come together and, and present a unified front to China I think the better the prospects are for getting China to open and reform its market and create a kind of a level playing field. Um, with respect to what he's going to inherit, um, and I don't think that's over yet because there are reports that the, pre that the current president between now and January 20th is even going to put in more restrictions with respect to China. Um, particularly in, in the area of export controls or putting more Chinese firms and, and, and officials on an entity list, which would mean that you know, there would be restrictions about doing business with these entities. Um, I think the Biden administration is gonna have to sit down and really review all of these measures, including the tariffs, um, and try and figure out, do we keep them in? Should they be lifted? If, if, if they should be lifted, what can we get from China in return? So I do not see a Biden administration coming in, for example, and saying, let's get rid of all of the tariffs we put on China. That's not going to happen. Um, I do think that the tariffs don't have to be lifted all at once either. They can be lifted incrementally. Rates can be reduced um, depending on what China would um, you know, provide in return. Okay, yeah, so that's an existing point of leverage that exists now that, that will be inherited exactly. by the new administration. Exactly. And, why, and why give up that leverage for nothing? 
So let me pick up on your point about multilateralism. That's something that we've heard a lot that the Biden administration is expected to take a more multilateral approach to, to many issues, including trade. And many critics over the last few years have decried the Trump administration's unilateral approach to trade policy. Um, but I just want to ask you, since you've got so much experience um, on this front, how easy is it really in practice to construct a united front with allies on this complex issue like we are dealing with with China when our allies have their own interests in domestic politics too? Yeah, and I, I think we, we need to have very realistic expectations as we work with allies and partners. Because let's remember, for most of our allies and partners, China is their largest trading partner, number one. They have um, you know, extensive business ties with China. China is a large and growing market um, with a, you know, a, a middle class that's growing by leaps and bounds. And so when it comes to working with us to kind of rein in some of these Chinese practices, they may have differences with us, particularly in two areas. The first being the level of ambition. Typically the US is much more ambitious than their allies and partners in this area. Um, and second with, with what's the approach. And I think a lot of our allies and partners are really want us to work within the WTO, which frankly is a good objective, but let's be honest, the WTO's negotiating function is pretty broken. Um, and you know it takes a long time to negotiate deals in the WTO. And so I think if we are realistic in our expectations and we also understand and respect where our trading partners are coming from, including, as you mentioned, their domestic politics, I think we can um, achieve some success. But I don't think all of our eggs can be in the basket of working with allies and partners. I think we need to give a lot more weight to that approach, but also recognize that there are going to be areas where we're probably still going to want to pursue things bilaterally with um, China, as well as maybe take unilateral measures if needed. Okay, so that, that's an interesting point and more of a reweighting of the approach toward multilateralism rather than simply replacing um, you know, those right, other right. tools we really, with that. We need a multifaceted approach. And mm -hmm. I think the question is, where do you put the weight? And frankly, it's not like the Trump administration didn't work with any allies or partners, they did, but they just didn't put emphasis on that leg of, of, of their policy. And frankly, when they work with allies and partners, it seemed to be at a much more junior level. And so I think in the Biden administration, you're gonna see senior officials, um, you know, cabinet level, and even um, the president himself getting involved in these discussions. Okay. So shifting focus just a little bit then to free trade agreement negotiations themselves. Um, many times it was pointed out during the election campaign that uh, the Biden administration, excuse me, the Biden campaign emphasized that a Biden administration would focus on domestic policy as a priority over entering into any new free trade agreements at first. Um, so what do you think that means for the status and future of trade negotiations that are currently still underway um, between the U.S. and Kenya, the U.S. and the U.K.? and others, so what might happen to these um, agreements under a new Biden administration in January, um, especially with trade promotion authority that is set to expire July 1st of next year? Well, I applaud the president-elect's intention to focus on making America strong again. I mean, first of all, we need to deal with the COVID pandemic. 
we need to get our economic recovery back on track. But we need, we need to build our competitiveness. We need to focus on education and infrastructure, innovation, research and development, and also take care of our workers who've been left behind by trade, globalization, and really tech, you know, technological advances. And if we can do all of that, in my view, negotiating trade agreements will become easier in that the expectations of what trade agreements can achieve and not achieve will be eased. Too often as a trade negotiator, I felt that everyone expected us to somehow turn the domestic economy around as well, or make sure that um, you know, income was distributed more evenly in, throughout our country. That's not the job of trade agreements. They're more about opening up markets, making sure there's fair trade, and so taking measures against unfair imports, um, as well as you know, getting other countries to kind of level the playing field with respect to not just trade measures, but also with respect to the environment and labor conditions as well. So number one, I applaud that. And I think if we can, if we can do that at home, then we negotiate also from a, a position of strength abroad. Um, but that said, um, the vice president, excuse me, I gotta get used to this now, the president-elect um, has been you know, very clear about um, you know, kind of taking a pause on pursuing trade, um, new trade agreements. Now he may inherit two um, ongoing negotiations that you mentioned, the UK and Kenya. My understanding on the Kenya talks is, you know, they're just getting off the ground. Um, this is a negotiating a negotiation with a developing country. There's going to be a lot of work to do. So I don't. I think the decision that the Biden administration will need to take is: should we continue these negotiations? But I don't see them wrapping up in the next year or two, frankly, based on my understanding of of where things stand now and my experience in deal in negotiating with developing countries in particular. The UK negotiations may, however, um, you know, present a decision point for the Biden administration. I think a lot will depend on how far along those negotiations are, um, whether the content of the draft text begins or, or in some fashion addresses the priorities the Biden administration has put forward of of dealing with middle-class issues, labor and the environment. And I think it will also depend on where our stakeholders are as well as where Congress is. Um, and um, I think it will also depend on where the Brexit negotiations are and frankly, where um, the whole issue of the North, of, of you know, the Ireland issue stands. Mm -hmm. So, but you mentioned trade promotion authority. It expires July 1. The UK negotiation is covered under trade promotion authority. Um, if we were going to conclude that negotiation under this current trade promotion authority, the UK negotiations would need to be basically completed by April 1. And that timeline is going to present an enormous challenge for any incoming administration, particularly if you keep in mind that a new USTR may not even been may not even be firm by then. So, uh, you know, we'll just have to see where that negotiation is. And, and, you know, the Biden team will need to kind of review all those factors I mentioned and make a decision. Is this something worth going forward with? 
or do we continue the negotiations but recognize it won't be covered under this trade promotion authority? Or do we just pause the negotiations for a while um, as we get our act together domestically and figure out which provisions will be most important to a Biden administration in pursuing trade agreements? Okay, <clears throat> so I, I think wanna... that's a longer answer than you expected. <laughs> well, it's a very comprehensive one, so okay. we appreciate that. <laughs> you're, you're diplomatic. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to talk now about a report that you released recently, um, which is called "Reengaging the Asia Pacific on Trade: A TPP Roadmap for the Next U.S. Administration." You published this back in October before we knew which administration might be coming in, um, but. I think um, I want to start with what I thought was a really unique and insightful aspect of this report, and, and also to remind our listeners, the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, was a trade agreement that the Trump administration pulled out of very early on um, when President Trump took office. A revised version of that agreement called the CPTPP went forward without the United States with uh, about seven member countries uh, where that, that has now been enforced for a while. So you've um, written this report offering some options for the U.S. to re-engage in that region um, and one thing that you did was you interviewed um, several foreign officials and former foreign officials from CPTP, CPTPP member countries. Um, so I want to ask you first, who did you talk with? What types of officials did you talk with? Um, and what were the key takeaways for you from them? Yeah, and you know, I thought it was really important if I was going to draft a report on options for the U.S. returning to the CPTPP or the TPP, to actually talk to current and former CPTPP officials in the various Asian and Latin American countries and North American countries, because too often we get so focused in the United States on what we need and what we want. And this is a very different prospect because we would be asking to basically join an agreement that they put in place. I mean, we chose to leave it the CPTPP countries under Japan's leadership decided to go forward. Now it's their deal and we'll be knocking on their door. So I thought it was important again to kind of reach out to them and to seek their views. And I was very heartened to hear that everyone I interviewed and there were um, about a dozen officials I interviewed, they all, the first thing they said is we welcome the United States back into the agreement. But then as the negotiation, then as the conversations continued, um, I heard a bit more, well, um, you know, we, when I asked, for example, would you be open to changes? And then the response was, well, as long as they're targeted and strategic, we don't want a, a you know, a big renegotiation, be asked to make tough political decisions particularly because we don't know where you might be in four years. And, you know, if you look at the um, election results, we still remain a very divided country. And I think our trading partners are just wary about going forward with us again, making big political decisions and have another president take office in four years and tear up that agreement. So I think we're going to need to be very respectful if we wanted to return to the CPTPP, and it couldn't be the text as is, we would need to seek changes. We need to seek updates. Frankly, some of the provisions are already outdated, particularly with respect to the digital economy. But I think we'd also need to seek revisions, some of them um, reflected in the US-Mexico-Canada um, agreement. Um, 
And so um, we need to, we would need a bond administration, we need to figure out kind of what, what, what the content would be, what changes we would need, we would need to see. Um, and so, you know, we'll have to see how that plays out. What I do recommend in my report is that since I think um, it's going to take time for any decision to be taken about re-engaging on CPTPP, let's not wait and maybe let's proceed with a narrower agreement in the region. And I suggest maybe one on digital trade or supply chains, particularly with respect to the medical sector or given the president-elect's emphasis and um, attention on climate change, why not see if we can do a narrow agreement on climate change slash the environment and trade, all in an effort to kind of regain trust, build momentum in the region, um, and also you know, get some victories and some success under our belts. Because I think many of these narrower agreements would not need trade promotion authority, would not need a vote by Congress. And so they could come into effect a lot quicker. Okay. Um, your report, I think, is, is also a really good reminder that Asian countries and other countries don't stand still when the U.S. pulls back. So much has been said in, in just the last 48 hours about the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, or RCEP, which was signed on Sunday, November 15th. Um, which includes China and um, all the ASEAN member countries and others, um, other partners, um, new trade deal signed, but not yet enforced. That'll still have to go through a national um, ratification process in the, the member countries. But I want to ask you, you know, how significant a development you think that is. RCEP has been discussed by some as a lower quality agreement, for example, than the TPP would have been. Um, we haven't seen the full tariff schedule yet, I don't think. So uh, how do you assess that agreement so far and how significant a development is this that now there is a second uh, major trade agreement that's been signed in the Asia Pacific region that the U.S. is not part of? Well, I think it's a significant development and one that the United States needs to pay close attention to. As you mentioned, 15 countries entered this trade agreement. They signed it um, you know, just 48 hours ago. The earliest could come into effect um, practically from my understanding would be a week, a year from this January and it may take longer. Um, but coming after eight years of negotiation and basically three years after the CPTPP came into effect, this is one more mega Asian deal where the United States is basically on the sidelines. And um, I think that this is going to have impacts on supply chains, on trade flows, on investment um, decisions. And um, it's something that the United States should not dismiss. I think we need to, to view this as another wake up call and figure out how we can re-engage on trade in the region. I mean, you're gonna hear a lot of people say, oh, this agreement is so weak. Once you read the text, there's so many exceptions and loopholes and some of the tariffs cuts won't come into effect for 20 years. Some of the rules provisions won't come in effect for five years. And, and I get all that, but I think that's missing the point because just the fact that these 15 countries could come together and reach this deal, I think is significant. And let's remember this is an ASEAN-based deal. And one thing the ASEANs love to do in their trade agreements is they view it kind of as a living, a living document. 
a living agreement. So maybe two years from now, you know, they'll, they'll add new rules. They'll truncate some of the transition periods. It's not the end of the story. I think it's more a beginning of, a, of another trend um, in Asia and one that, uh, you know, if this trend continues and we continue, and we continue to be on the sidelines, we're gonna be put at a great disadvantage. And maybe 20, 30 years from now, we'll look back and we'll think, you know, what were we doing? How did we end up in the position um, that we are? And that means on the outside looking in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the idea of a living agreement too seems to be the approach of ASEAN itself um, as a bloc. And just to remind our listeners, that's the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, a grouping of 10 nations in Southeast Asia. And it is amazing because among the 10 countries, they're at very different levels of development. So you look at a Singapore, for example, as opposed to a Laos or Cambodia, but all of these countries sign this agreement. And that's one of the reasons why there are some long transition periods. Um, some apply to the larger countries, more advanced countries for sensitive products and issues for them. But um, for a lot of the rules, I think some of the least developed ASEAN countries were given longer transition periods. That means they have more time to undertake the obligations of the agreement. Okay, so bringing this back home again, um, one recommendation in your report I wanna focus on for a moment is that you included the recommendation that we need to make the case for trade. Um, and it sounds like, you know, going back to what you said earlier, there oftentimes may be uh, too many expectations put on trade agreements that there's an expectation it can solve everything in, in the domestic economy. So perhaps the way we talk about trade needs to change, perhaps that's in order. Um, so I wanna ask what compelled you to include that recommendation in your report and, and how you think that that can be done? Well, the reason I included it is because at the end of the day, we need domestic support for these trade agreements, right? Typically they need congressional approval and congressional approval often relies on where the public is. And so it's very important that, you know, the public understands the benefits of, of trade and trade agreements. Um, I think, you know, in agriculture, those benefits are pretty apparent. And I think farmers for the most, you know, you know, to, for the most part are very supportive and probably the most supportive constituent for trade agreements because they have a lot of produce um, and commodities to export and those the markets are overseas, right? And so they, they get it. But when you think of manufacturers, it's kind of a two-edged sword. It depends which industry you work in. Um, if, it's a, if you're working for a firm that, that relies on exports, that's one thing. Um, but many manufacturers also look at the import side and, they, and they're very concerned about unfair competition. So we need to do a good job of explaining the benefits of trade. Now, this is not a new suggestion. I mean, I have worked for a number of administrations that have made this a priority. We've tried a lot of different approaches. You know, the idea is don't, don't talk about the benefits in like a macro sense, bring it home to the consumer, bring it home to the worker, get real life stories from small and medium sized enterprises. And we've done that. Um, so this, is, this isn't like, a, there's no silver bullet here, but I would just conclude and say in, in, in a kind of a crazy way, President Trump has almost made the case for trade in that by imposing all of these tariffs and making trade policy such a preeminent part of his overall foreign policy, 
Americans are talking about trade now and Americans kind of understand that tariffs are taxes and either as either companies are paying more money um, for their inputs or consumers are now paying more money for what, you know, for what they buy in the store. So in a crazy way, he's almost brought home the benefits of trade. So I'm hoping going forward, um, as um, you know, we talk more about trade and the benefits, people will recognize that, yeah, you know, I just went out to buy a desk as I'm, you know, tele as I'm, you know, remotely working at home. And because of these tariffs on China, I'm paying a lot more money for that desk, um, you know, versus had that um, tariff not been put on. So um, again, I think that um, Americans in the past four years are kind of getting it that trade affects, you know, all parts of their lives. Okay, so following up on that for a moment, you know, you, you laid out the differences between perhaps the way the agricultural producers view trade because um, there's a reliance on foreign export markets for their goods versus the way uh, manufacturers might see it where it's a more complex picture. There are perceptions that trade has perhaps contributed to job losses in manufacturing, for example, over the last couple decades. So I want to um, ask, you know, how uh, two questions. One is because trade policy can have disparate impacts in different U.S. states, depending on what's driving the economies in those states. Um, people in those states may have different perceptions about trade policy. So how how can trade negotiators um, take into account different public perceptions on trade when their job is to pursue the national interest um, on trade policy? And then secondly, um, how is the U.S. government organized to take in um, input from people, from anyone who wants to provide it on trade? Is it properly organized to get anybody's view um, um, and perceptions um, on trade um, as foreign policy and trade policy is being developed? So I think, you, you know, you put your finger on the really tough question. I mean, as trade negotiators, your job is to pursue the national interest. But what happens when different constituents want different things and often conflicting things in a trade agreement? And so as a government official, you need to balance all of these interests and try and come up with a policy um, that, that takes those concerns and valid concerns you know, into account um, as proposals are pursued with foreign governments. But it's not easy. Um, sometimes um, domestic measures can help here because sometimes I remember constituents would come into, you know, in, at, come to our building at USTR and try to explain why, um, you know, they were against the trade agreement. And the more you you talk to them, the more you recognize that it wasn't really trade that either they could pursue their concerns through a, a trade law, our existing trade legislation, um, but that didn't preclude us you know, proceeding with a trade negotiation, or there was something that could be done domestically separate from a trade agreement to address their concerns. But again, um, you know, it's, it's not easy. Um, and for every constituent that came in, many also got their Congress represent their congressional representatives to come in as well. Um, and so as trade negotiators, you can imagine the pressure um, that is put on you to try and navigate through all of these different views to hopefully come up you know, with, with a good policy and then negotiate a good trade agreement that works you know, for our country overall. 
And one of the things I learned was that um, when you bring any trade agreement home, it, it, it's they always face major criticism, and they'll they then and the critics are from all sides. So either certain critics feel that you didn't get enough for them, other critics feel you got too much for the other side and not enough for them, um, and so. You know, you have to recognize that sometimes if everyone's unhappy, then maybe you did a good job. Um, with respect to your second question, I think the U.S. government does a very good job in soliciting input from all around the country through a federal register notice process. Public hearings are typically held um, before trade agreements are, are entered into. Um, and then throughout the negotiations, there is um, iterative discussions with stakeholders, um, including through a formal advisory process, um, which is many different committees, one on agriculture, um, the one on labor, and then broken down to um, you know, different manufacturing sectors as well. But I think we can do a better job here. And one of the areas where I think we should really look at is um, trying to ban our negotiators out all around the country to solicit input from different states, from different localities, um, from different regions, and really factor that input into our trade negotiating proposals. Because we're not a monolith country, particularly when it comes to trade. So I think, again, there's always room for improvement in, in inviting public comments. Um, and I think it's so important that our citizens take advantage because I can tell you, if we got 400 comments before a trade negotiation, I'd be up really late at night reading through them. I mean, we took them seriously. And sometimes it, it, you know, we would get written submissions and would lead to really further discussions with that constituent to really understand what their concern was, either a defensive concern or an offensive concern in terms of what they wanted the other country to do. That is a really interesting idea, Wendy, too, that you mentioned about having trade negotiators fan out across the US, because as you said, there are a lot of established communications channels through public comment you know, periods or hearings, but to actually bring trade negotiators out here on the ground to kind of pull more information out of people who might not be familiar with those channels, I think that's really fascinating. We'll have to watch and see if that is something that develops um, going forward. Um, I want to ask you one last question, which is the same one that I ask every guest on this podcast, and that is, um, what are you reading lately? What is something you've read lately about trade or global commerce that has been particularly striking to you? So, and you had warned me about this question, so uh, I, it's interesting because this was the one I really had to think about. I have to admit that I read so much for work that you know, when it comes to just reading in my spare time, um, um, I love fiction. Um, I don't sit and read you know, histories of trade and, and foreign policy. I find that um, I need an escape. But one, one, one speech that I really wanted to bring to the attention of everyone, and this is something I remember when it was given and it's just had a real impact on me. And I read it again early this morning before I came on this podcast is a speech that Prime Minister Abe gave to um, you know, his, his public. Um, this was in 2013 in March 
and it was when he told the Japanese people that he planned to join TPP. Now, at that time, I had been working on these negotiations um, to try and get Japan into the TPP. We were going back and forth with them. You can imagine it was a, a very tough political decision, decision for Japan, particularly given um, its agriculture interest. And you know, for years, it had been extremely protectionist, a very closed market. And Japan knew if they joined the TPP, they'd have to open up that market, which for Japan was an extremely, you cannot discount what a tough political decision it was. And when I looked at the speech this morning, I think it's extremely relevant today. And what it showed to me was just a lot of leadership. The speech starts and he, he basically says, I have decided to join the TPP. Then he lays out the reasons why Japan needs to do this. And he points to demographic changes in Japan. He points to the fact that if Japan isn't there writing the rules, others will write the rules for Japan. But then he also talks about the concerns and that he understands that his citizens have concerns, particularly in agriculture. And it wasn't just about you know their fear of agricultural imports. It was a fear that almost like by opening up in agriculture, they'd be ruining their way of life in terms of farm villages. So it got into the whole culture of Japan. And he talks about all of this, but he basically says, nevertheless, you know, I, I'll, look, I'll look out for you during these negotiations, I'll pursue the national interest, but nevertheless, we need to do this as a country. And for me, it shows leadership um, and it, it shows the, the intersection between domestic and international policy when it comes to trade um, and the fact that every political leader really faces domestic challenges when they decide to open up or to reform further. And so I would urge anyone who's listening to kind of Google that speech and read it. It's not very long, but it had, an, it had a huge impact on me in 2013. Um, and I then went ahead and, and negotiated with Japan in the TPP. They turned out to be incredible partners in TPP. And if you had told me in 2013 that the story would have ended with the United States out of TPP and then Japan leading the other 11 countries to conclude the deal, I would have told you, you're crazy. This will never happen. But you know that's the way the story happened. Um, and hopefully, this, that story isn't over. Thank you, Wendy. That's a that's a fascinating pick. I thank you for pointing us to that speech. I think we should. I'm sure, all I'm sure your other that. listeners did pick that one. No, we. I don't think anyone's ever picked a speech in answer to that question. So you're breaking new ground here as well. Trendsetter. Yes, you are. <laughs> Wendy, thank you so much for being on this podcast today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Trade Matters. Thanks for listening. And a big thank you to Alex Wojcicki and JC Toman for helping produce this podcast. Please subscribe to Trade Matters on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have ideas or topics you would like to hear about on Trade Matters, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at geiterinstitute at unl.edu. That's Y-E-U-T-T-E-R institute at unl.edu. Or follow us on Twitter at geiterunl. Opinions expressed on trade matters are solely those of the guest or host 
and not the Yider Institute or the University of Nebraska-Lincoln.